sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to another edition of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Thanks for tuning in. If it's your first time, holy crap. Let, let's explain how it works. If you have a question about rock and roll history, if you want to hear us tell you what we know about some rumor, some innuendo that you've heard, you send us an email. That is we are the story guys at gmail.com. Tonight we have a letter from Kalo. He is from Toronto. And he says, it's been a while since you guys did a show about hip-hop. How about tackling the time KRS-One pushed PM Don right off the stage? So glad I found you guys. Keep telling stories. When, when I read this letter initially, I, was, I thought that was like an expression, like when you blow someone off the stage, like when you're better than the opening band or when the opening band is better than you. And then I realized that's not what this story is about. This is literally about one no. rapper pushing another rapper physically. Set adrift on memory blow. <laughs> we're, we're just going to go there. We're just... <laughs> you get it? See what I did there? I just took the song and I fell off the stage. Oh, oh, I got pushed off the stage. Have you ever had to be physically removed from somewhere? Okay. I think you know the answer to this. Do you, do you, do we, should I go ahead and unload one here? Or do we just save it for Patreon people? And we no, tell them the dirty no, go, details. No, go ahead. Go ahead and tell the story. Uh, the first time I was ever removed from a, uh, any type of establishment was my very first <laughs> evening in New York City. <laughs> In a place that I should not have been. Uh, and I was removed from Brownies, which I hope is still open. It was a very <laughs> big, you know, music venue. I do know this that, story. I do know this yeah. story. But I did go next door to this bar next door before that, and it's called the Notel Motel. That is a bar and not a house of ill repute. But the <laughs> things that I did there did not help me out at Brownies. At some point, I couldn't stand, and I just got a chair and sat in oh, it watching the show. Yikes. And, yeah, I, I got thrown on the sidewalk on, on an alphabet city in New York and into a cab. You, man. So my buddy Colin likes to tell stories from my wild college drinking days, which were short because they were so intense that I had to quit or be quit, probably. Uh, but he, he does tell stories because he is a bulkier man than I that he used to pick me up and throw me over his shoulder when I was in a situation that I should not be in. He would just be the bouncer for me and uh, relocate me to a safer space because I couldn't do it myself. So, you know, we all need a friend like that. Thanks, Colin. Uh, but this is like really about removing someone from a stage. Right, which is completely different. And that is called da, 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 the shepherd's hook. Yeah, Everyone well, knows what it is. So that's what it's it made like me that. think of. It made me think of that vaudeville gag. Like I had to look up. Yeah. I was. I asked you, and you were like, "Yeah, that's the that's the whole shepherd's hook thing." Yeah. <laughs> and they pull you off. So so the here's the background on it, which is amazing. So yeah, it's a vaudeville, right? And it came out of the freaking Bowery, like yeah, where yeah. the Ramones and Television and all those bands came from. So there's a guy named Henry Minor, and he will eventually serve a single term as a U.S. representative in New York State at the tail end of the old days, the 1800s, when they had didn't have talkies. But before <laughs> he gets there, he, he builds his reputation first on what I did, my life, pharmacies, and then theater. <laughs> Uh, and then one of these theaters will become known as the 18 in the 1870s as Miners Bowery Theater. And the whole bit 
at this theater was that anyone could do it. It sounds like the Apollo or something, you know, it's like, or care, you know, anyone could try something, but the challenge was if it was deemed too bad, then the wooden hook would come out and pull you off the stage. So they had this big prop. It was like a big, it's a shepherd's hook and people would yell, give him the hook. <laughs> if they thought that the stuff. Is that real? So That's really whenever, what used to happen. So whenever you, yeah. <laughs> Give him the hook. I think I know that. Stack coming to the stage. I think I know that from the Muppet Show. I think that's what I associate the Shepherd took from. I totally associate all that with Jim Henson. Yeah. It has to be like it's Gonzo, right? It's gone. It's Fozzie. It's Fozzie. Fozzie always got the shepherds. Yeah, 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 waka yeah. Waka. Like the jokes, like the jokes either went too long or he was right. And when you're a kid, you hated him. You don't understand that it's a, it's a reference to vaudeville. That's what's so fun about that, that sort of stuff. Like the hints and sense of humor and the other stuff you see weave throughout children's yeah. programming over the last 50 years or whatever. The, the smart guys are always putting in jokes that you'll be a, a grown ass adult doing a podcast with your friend. And you'll be like, Oh, that's what that joke was. It was it was Henry Minor. <laughs> Give him the hook. So okay, if we're talking rock and roll rivalries, though, there's like usually a few things to blame, right? There's usually like either drugs are to blame or sex a lot of the times, but but most of the time, regardless of if it's one of those other two things, there's a whole lot of ego, and one of the key components wrapped up in ego is this idea of worth and authenticity, right? Is what I'm making valuable, yeah. but also is it like believable? And is it more valuable and more believable than the, the next guy's contribution? Like there's street cred. Like street, that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, that's what you call it, right? Street yeah. cred. So when it comes to music, this idea is like more front and center in different genres at different times. Yeah, and where we both grew up, South of Mason-Dixon line, we're very familiar with country music used to totally be this way, oh, right? yeah. So, Right. So we, we've had uh, an episode we talked about Loretta, Loretta Lynn and the lore around her is that coming from nothing in the middle of a part of Kentucky that doesn't even have street signs, right, she was right. qualified to talk about poverty right, right, and right. the rough life of a coal miner because she literally was a coal miner's daughter. That is a really good example. And like to follow that thread, Merle is another good one, right? Working Man Blues was being sung by, sung by a working man. And if I can just... Um, hold back my vitriol for a minute and very kindly say this. Now you get to current day country radio in the last few decades. And one of the resounding complaints from people like me who grew up driving pickup trucks is the authenticity is not as apparent in guys who are singing a song that goes, baby, you're a song, baby, don't be down on the radio. So Florida Georgia Line, Luke Bryan, and all these clowns, like there's nothing, like this is not how we do it in a small town. You're from Macon, Georgia, that whole song, like that's ridiculous. That song, by the way, Brian, the, the what is it? The This yeah, is yeah. not how we do it in a small town. That video was filmed in, in the town 30 minutes from where I grew up. It was the place where the mall was, like where we went to get clothes, where I bought, where I bought Nirvana's Nevermind was in the town with that courthouse. So, so absolutely. Right. There, there feels to be a lot less authenticity because it's, it's bro country. Well, and, and to bring it right to our doorstep in 2023, you've got this guy, Morgan Wallen. Okay. I've, I've learned, I've learned everything. I've learned that he is like the biggest thing in music and I got yeah. it. Like he's one of the yeah. biggest things in it. But I just want to explain. I went to dinner tonight and <laughs> hoping and it didn't turn out like I wanted to any of it. But um, you know, we walk in, I can't remember what it was. It was like this really kind of quiet, you know, uh song. It's really nice. And then it had On Your Side by Sade played oh, yeah, right after that. Nice. 
and then and then Morgan Wallace. And then I was kind of like, there's a Morgan Wallace song. And I and I remember I don't remember which day it was, Brian, but I remember that today I learned that Morgan Wallen covers the Jason Isabel song, Isabel song that is the most private, personal, important song out of Jason Isabel's canon, right? It's the song about him getting sober. And oh. it, it totally, and, and so when Morgan Wallen sings it, people think that it's his song and it has a totally different identity because people don't know, oh yeah, Morgan Wallen wasn't going to get married to Amanda Shires unless he got, got sober. No, that's not, that's a wrong dude. So, <laughs> right. So cover me up sounds completely different and feels different when Morgan Wallen uh, sings it. Well, this but, is this is authenticity. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? He doesn't yes, really have right. a Merle and Loretta kind of story. His initial aspirations, he was a high school athlete, which I always get he frustrated when a- a- yeah, athletes turn to music. I'm like, no, 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 get out of my playground. Like, this is, you're not supposed to be able to do both. But he ended up on The Voice, which I think people forget. He did not win, but he made it several rounds inside The Voice. And then there's this, right when he was starting to emerge as a star in 2020, there was this profile in The New Yorker and it's a, it really offers a glimpse into what we're talking about. And I'm not bringing this up to just just bag on Morgan Wallen, right? I know, or Morgan Wallen fans. You know, you may love the songs. You may think he's great. You may think he's sexy. I don't, I don't care. That's not what we're here to talk about. But he does play into this idea of authenticity because this is a fascinating profile in The New Yorker, if you've not read it. And, of course, it's in the show notes. And I would say that despite it being in The New Yorker and it being about country music, it's not dismissive. And it's not a condescending profile, and it's not mean, it's not a gotcha thing, but it does give you a glimpse into some of the calculations made in a career like that now, as opposed to the way we think about Loretta and Merle. Like, the guy gets his hair cut into a mullet, and he makes the statement, quote, country music may not have been the biggest influence in my life as far as music, but once I started writing songs, it just sounded country. And just remember, everybody, a mullet can actually be a choice now. Um, <laughs> no, when I was a, uh, kid, a choice, was, a choice made by somebody besides your mom. No, there was like mullet and um, crew cut, the high and tight. I had just that was it. So, <laughs> it was, so, so the authenticity of a of a backstory are not the main driving factors in and country music, obviously. No, no. Days. And like I said, it's not to pick on the genre, but I, I, I cause it's actually not the genre. Oh, we are. Well, it's not the genre we're here to talk about, but I think there's some parallels and it will ground this discussion in the larger topic of what makes one artist's input more valuable or worthy of consideration than in others. I, I think in today's story, especially, and eventually we're going to get to KRS one's country record. <laughs> that actually what if, doesn't what exist. if that is where we were headed? <laughs> yeah. If this was April fools, I would have nailed all you guys. But uh, and for this, this story today, there's a comparison companion question of, are you doing what you do for the quote, right? Unquote reasons. Well, yeah, you Very nail different. you nail it there. And this could apply to Morgan Wallen too. Right. But it requires, us to define what we mean by the right reason. And this gets us all the way back to that age old question of where art and commerce should connect, right? Because the complaint is often when you're talking about a Morgan Wallen, the complaint is, and I mean, he sort of alludes to it in that quote. That's why I included that from the New Yorker where he's like, well, it just sounded country. And it's like, Oh, so this was going to be the easiest way for you to get into the business. Like, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but this is why sometimes people leverage this idea of they're just doing it for the money. Morgan singing country because it will make him more cash than something else or because his voice lends itself in that direction 
more easily. And to overlap this discussion into hip hop, which is what we're going to talk about, we need to get some context to where we are with hip hop history. Well, and we have a couple of key episodes too. If you want to just throw those uh, into your rotation, if you want to revisit them, or if you've not heard them, so here's where some good background is on some of this stuff. Cause we're going to like move pretty quick, but episode 125, Christmas versus hip hop history, a, a, a episode that I love that I feel like was a sleeper. Like it, it like, yeah, it, it, but anyway, uh, and then we go all the way back in episode 34, which is Beastie Boys versus the future of hip hop, where we talk a lot about sampling. When Let's give people a context here. So when does KRS-1 PM Dawn drama happen? So early 90s is when this when this actual incident happens is like end of 91. It's funny because it depends on who you read. Uh, it's either like December of 91 or January of 92 in most tellings. Okay, so we're the incident is past the release of Paul's boutique. The right? incident is, and I love that you're yeah. pointing that out as a as a as a like on the tour of hip hop history. It's like, and here's Paul's boutique, uh, but the lead up to it is not yeah. the rise of these acts into hip hop notoriety, beasties included. It all happens around the same time. We're talking late '80s, so this all becomes part of the story. Will you give us like a quick hip hop history primer, very quick, to get us from inception of hip hop and then into like the late '80s? I want to give everybody just a quick disclaimer. I'm not sure I'm the most appropriate person to do this <laughs> fast, but I'm going to try. So so anyway, it's an evolution of technology in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a so good point. If you, if you think about it, so this started in New York. It started up in the, in the five boroughs in New York. It started up there. And it was block parties, and there were DJs, and they were trying to make the drum beat in a song last longer. So they put two turntables together next next to each other so they could loop you know, loop the beat. And then while the, the beat on the second turntable is playing, they would rewind the beat on the first turntable and then they'd use the fader to go back to the other one. And when it gets easier and easier to do this with tech, then that's when you start having the genre changes and the MC enters the, the thing. And then we have the real Roxanne and all the other fun stuff. Happens. But it, it doesn't go mainstream though for a while. And this is why I love the Christmas hip hop uh, episode that we did last year, where it, it partly because of where it's birthed, right? It doesn't hit the mainstream quickly because it's not in a culturally significant place, or at least the way things are thought of at the time. Namely, it's coming out of impoverished neighborhoods, which there's no talent scouts running to the Bronx to see, you know, what's happening yeah. there at the block parties. And so loosely you have these different periods of hip hop that we consider historically now. And again, being very general here, Murdoch and I are not hip hop experts. I mean, we are students of music and students of pop culture, but we, you know, there are definitely people more qualified than us to talk on this. We're just doing this to like sort of lay the, the groundwork. So we know where, what we're talking about and, and put some guardrails up for our conversation. Okay. That first period, that's what we now call old school. If, if somebody refers to old school hip hop, what they really are referring to probably is this stuff in the early, like basically the seventies. And the songs are positive in the mo in most cases, and they're like usually about throwing a party because they're being created at parties. Yeah, and I don't know if anybody's seen. There's a clip, and it's T Pain, and he's on a radio show, and there's a, the the radio show host is doing an impression of early old school hip hop, and he's just going boom, doo, boom, boom on a drum machine and he's like hey everybody get on down get on down with the groovy dub and t-pain just starts laughing it's like if when t-pain laughs we all laugh yeah we, right, right. A, yeah. the world laughs so, yeah so as it as it gets more commercial right in the the 80s and stuff you start to have people in different places with different viewpoints colliding 
with it while the technology is changing. And so you get this next period that encompasses the mid 80s into the early and almost mid 90s. And this is what is very generally referred to as the golden age of hip hop. And it's in this period where our story really starts. Yeah, and one of the terms you'll often hear in this period is diversity, which is different than it is today. You'll get a lot of early attempts at new styles, right? Where people try new things because they hip hop started off very basic and it had to grow with the technology, the MCs and everything. But these new styles will go on to be scenes of their own. But that start let's start here under that big umbrella, right? Well, the, to your point, uh, this new style. This point, this period gives us LL Cool J and Slick Rick. Mm-hmm. Slick Rick, we've talked about him on the show. But it also gives us Chuck D and the guy we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, who we've already introduced under a different name, Lawrence Chris Parker, who of course will come to be known as KRS one. Yeah, what this leads to, if some of you don't know, is a lyrical split, right? Old school hip hop's about throwing a party and Chuck D and KRS-One are about getting a message across. And, and this message is about blackness and it's about politics and it's about social issues and it's it's fairly serious. It's, it's not the party anthems that you were getting at the block parties. No, and if we boiled KRS-One's story down to a couple of essential ingredients, which I hadn't thought about in years, it's important to notice the abuse he suffers in his childhood and the searching that it inspires. The quickest way to sort of shortcut through that is that by his late teen years, he's in homeless shelters and group homes, and he gets the nickname of Krishna. That's what people call him, because he's so curious about Hare Krishna and the spirituality he sees displayed by those people who he sees working with people like him. He's curious about what would drive people to give up their lives to work with people like him. And then Sliding Door is amazing. He meets a youth counselor who becomes a big part of the story, and that guy will become known as Scott LaRock. Before he meets KRS-One, he is just Scott Sterling. So he's born in the Bronx. He goes to high school. He's a, he's a college athlete, another one of those guys. He comes back to New York City after school, and he he's like, I think I can like get into music, but I need a day job in the meantime. His mom gets him a job as a social worker at Franklin Armory Men's Shelter in the Bronx. Yeah, and it's it's in 86 while he's doing the social work position that he meets Chris Parker, who's living in that shelter. And they go on to form what will be the one of the forefather groups of hip-hop as we know it today, Boogie Down Productions, or if you're nasty, BDP. And they have a record that is worth spinning just to do it, and it came out in March of 87 that's called Criminal Minded. We already talked about timing a bit, this being the golden age of hip-hop, but another defining characteristic of this period, as you already pointed out, by mentioning Paul's Boutique, and what you're really pointing out, I should just make this very clear to people who, who aren't familiar, what you're pointing out is that is a watershed moment in sampling. There is a crackdown that happens around Paul's Boutique where sampling is it's not as easy to do anymore. Yeah, and kind of like Paul's Boutique, which is later... Uh, Criminal Minded is sampling stuff this audience is not used to hearing inside hip-hop. Dancehall reggae, and then there's rock stuff. So ACDC, Beatles, Uptown Girl, Billy Joel. The Uptown Girl guy, Billy Joel. By the way, Uptown Girl by Billy Joel played before Morgan Wallet. That was the song that played <laughs> before that at dinner tonight. I remember that. So, that song. This yeah. album not anyway. only it not only has samples, it will go on to be sampled by a million people and become a foundational text for a lot of folks that will go into hip-hop over the next 20 years after it, including J-Lo, Jenny from the Block. It, it references Criminal Minded. Did you know that? Uh, but also like every hip-hop record for the next 25 years. 
Yeah. And if any of you like are familiar with KRS-One from one part of the other part of his career and you're not familiar with this, that first LP, those guys are all holding handguns. Yeah, they, like, they don't have a soft them. reputation, right? I mean, he becomes yeah. known as the teacher, which we're going to talk about, and he becomes known as a socially conscious rapper. So, like, you know, I think generationally, for my generation, the socially conscious rapper guy was most deaf, right? That's, like, who I always thought of when we talked about that. Generation before him, it's KRS-One. and But when he's in BDP, they ain't soft. They often get credited for actually making the way for gangster rap to happen. But this is where we circle back to authenticity. Because like I said, KRS-One, or you said, grows up in this abusive household. He's from the street. This is not a manufactured thing. And bad shit continues to happen to these guys. This album comes out in March of 87. And Scott LaRock is shot and killed in August of that same year. Five months. So let's talk about, let's take the switch. Everybody, you ready? You want to hold our hand as we walk across the lake and take you to the other group that's mentioned this letter. Just they have a lot in common with KRS-One because they have letters of the alphabet in their name, too. That is PM Dawn. <laughs> that's who we're going to talk about today. Our letter. So if we just want a shortcut to the action, do you, there's this quote from Entertainment Weekly that David Brown wrote this article. He said, PM Don's hefty frontman, Prince B has been called everything from an ersatz hippie to a fraud. The encyclopedia.com entry on PM Don says it this way, which is fun. As early as 1989, Prince B and his brother, DJ minute mix. Do you guys remember that DJ minute mix was the guy. Okay. We're using the tools of hip hop. There were the standard vocal rhymes and sampling of bars from previously recorded songs to make music that appealed to a largely white pop audience. So so here we go. We're back into this authenticity conversation, right? KRS-One is rapping over ACDC and his mentor and accomplice is getting shot down in the street. Meanwhile, PM Don are a couple of brothers from New Jersey who grew up in an extended family full of DJs and who score a minor hit by literally singing over a monkey song. And this lack of street cred is a liability at first. They go to Tommy Boy Records for a deal, and they are told the world doesn't need another De La Soul, which, by the way, how insulting. You know, De La Soul is on Tommy Boy. And they aren't street enough. That's that. So they get this small label interested who starts testing singles in the UK, which is sometimes a, a great idea. And they get traction that way. And through a bankruptcy, they end up getting picked up by Chris Blackwell's Island Records. So not only is this music literally softer, while it's being made not far from New York City, it's literally being exported and re-imported to get people's attention. And there's this narrative picked up in the press that PM Don is literally making hip hop for white people. Yeah. Here's something from the LA times. It's November 30th, 1991. It's a profile and it starts this way. Quote, I'm not black in quote PM Don's Prince B announced firmly during an interview in a West Hollywood restaurant and a soft voice. I can't, I can't do the soft voice <laughs> in a soft voice that seems strange coming from a 300 pound man. The 21 year old rapper continued quote, I'm a human being. Anyone who considers himself black or white is crazy. It's my spirit that counts, not my color. I'm a spiritual being End quote. So obviously our attitudes towards how we talk about these things in this country has changed dramatically since 1991. That goes without saying. But think about the time and think about white parents everywhere who are getting nervous because they're hearing phrases start to proliferate in the media, phrases like gangsta rap, and they're hearing about 
these shootings, the kind of shootings that are literally happening to the BDP crew. And all of a sudden, here are, here are a couple of nice, nice black guys who are singing over old pop songs that they remember. The Monkees. And they're asking for white people to not notice their skin color. This is, are we the back end of that LA Times piece? Yeah, it's all these quotes sound like they sound like they come from Clarence Thomas. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. If if PM Dawn's music is different than most rap, Prince B's views, however, are radically different from the black unity cries of such acclaimed rap figures as Chuck D and KRS One. Uh, this is him on government affirmative action programs that encourage minority hiring. Quote: It's too focused on race. It lets people who aren't qualified get jobs over people who are. Holy shit! On the on the working habits of blacks, quote, blacks aren't being held down anymore. Blacks like to figure out ways of getting by without doing anything. End quote, you're a douchebag, PM Don. <laughs> on this issue of slavery, quote, slavery was hundreds of years ago. It's time to forgive and forget, end quote. When it was suggested that these views might not be popular with much of rap's core African-American audience, Prince B shrugged, quote, I don't mind, he said. I can stand the heat, end quote. Oh, can he, though? And that's what the rest of this episode is dedicated to finding out. So they start getting all this press because of a particular song that you alluded to up top, Set Adrift on Memory Bliss. This song is huge. Number one spot on three Billboard charts, pop, R&B, and dance. And like some of their British hits, this one is, again, laid on top of a sampled bit of a 1983 song that white people love called True by Spando Ballet. Set Adrift on Memory Set Adrift on Memory Bliss became the first single by a black rap group to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And the siblings themselves become only the third rap act to reach the top of the chart overall. Right. So this is fall of 91. So we're getting towards Nirvana time. Never mind time. And with all this buzz, PM Dawn is finally getting some high-profile American opportunities, like that LA Times interview is a big deal, and another one in a magazine that I used to have a subscription to, and that is Details. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. In this interview with Details, Prince B gets asked, I mean, remember, I do feel a little bit for him in this period because I feel like he's getting baited because of some of the crazy stuff he's saying, so people just push him to say more stuff in interviews. And he gets asked about the contrast of what PM Don is doing and what is happening among rappers like Chuck D and KRS-One. And he he has this to say. Yes, everyone, I want you to understand what foreshadowing is. Are you ready? Okay. Quote, KRS-One wants to be a teacher. But a teacher of what? Oh, man. End so I, I, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but Ticha is actually a stage name that KRS-One will use. He is sometimes referred to as Ticha. And while KRS-One is a play on the nickname, Chris, KRS-One will say that it actually stands for Knowledge Reigns Supreme Over Nearly Everyone. Yeah. So he's been actively taking on this image in perception as someone who teaches. But that's a loaded question, right? Like to say... What does this guy teach? The guy says he's a teacher. Yeah. Well, excuse me. Now, there's some backstory to this that gets left out. So KRS-One is getting shade thrown at him a lot during this period because of political stances he has been taking regarding his overall viewpoints on race and other topics. We won't get into that here because we've already done tons of it with PM Dawn, but it has to do with his ideals, etc. And so he is on the edge 
in terms of being called out with these beefs. So when he reads this quote from Prince B in details, his reaction is like, what the hell? This guy too? Yeah. Now we have to introduce another character into all of this. So after Scott LaRock dies, Karis one is determined to continue on. And so he builds out sort of this new group of people. And one of the people that becomes a big part of his life and his act is actually his brother who will go on to be known as DJ Kenny Parker. And at this time, there's no social media. So if you were in the party scene, you didn't log on to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok to figure out where the next party was. You found out about the next party at the party you were currently at. So you go to one good hang, and people are handing you flyers about the next good hang. And right after this quote comes out in details, Kenny, who again is Karis One's brother and you know supreme confidant, is at a party, and he gets handed a handbill that promotes a party that is coming up that weekend. It is in New York, and it's not just any party. It is the Yo! MTV Raps T-Money birthday party. And on this bill are several hip-hop acts, and among those acts on this bill, headlining some guys who are at the top of their game with a song called Set Adrift on Memory Bliss, PM Don is going to be at this concert. Did you did you ever watch Yo! MTV Raps with... Fat Five Freddy? No, I, I missed it. Okay, so I did, and then it took me a little bit to plug back into Blondie's Rapture and realize that in the late 70s, she's dropped his name in this quasi-disco hit, and now, you know, almost a decade later, I'm watching him in the after, like afternoons, man, after school, yeah, yeah, uh, hosting uh, MTV Raps. It was awesome. I wish, like, for, as far as MTV and, and, and videos and everything, like, that should have never went away. <laughs> like that should have been like American bandstand, solid gold, soul train, like yo MTV rap should have been a thing that should have been an institution because I don't know. It just like headbangers ball, like felt a little, you know, goofy depending on who was hosting it. But M- yo MTV raps, like there was an authenticity to it. it well, felt and like that's what this whole watch. thing is about. Right. And so this is T money's birthday party. This is a, this is a big deal. This is going to be kind of high profile there and MTV is breaking this PM Don song, right? So this is clearly connected. The fact that PM Don is playing this MTV related event. So DJ Kenny Parker heads back to the studio to show his brother, this handbill he's just been handed at this party. And when KRS one sees it, he sees an opportunity. He says, if this guy's going to talk shit and ask what I teach, I want to show up and teach him a few things on stage. So they form this plan. Karis One and his crew are going to show up at this event and they will demand an onstage rap battle to put PM Don in their place. Brian, when you when you conceptualize this in your head, is this more like eight mile or <laughs> breaking electric boogaloo? <laughs> that is or, the wait, best question. The best question you've ever asked on this show, and you've asked a lot yeah. of good questions. Bre- breaking is that breaking the first breaking is breakdance fighting. And the second one is they're trying to save the community center. So there's actually no rap battle happening. There. This is more like a <laughs> So, okay. It's worth noting that my source here is DJ Kenny Parker himself. I, I, you have to see that in the show notes, there is a link to DJ Kenny Parker's YouTube channel, which exists and on which he spends a long period of time speaking directly to the camera and telling stories. And there is a 42 minutes. There is a 42 minute video where he tells his version of this story. And I will tell you that it feels like six minutes. Like it's so good. Uh, It's in the show notes. (laughs) Check it out. You'll get all the excruciating detail, like, like almost down to what he's wearing. Like it almost gets that ridiculous, but he does paint a picture 
of the intent being somewhat professional and innocent when it starts. I, I just think that's important to point out. I, I know it's coming from him, but I just say they're, they're kind of trying to be professional about this. Yeah. And you know, the rumor innuendo, the different stories, there's other accounts of the story though. Cool. Kim, who's definitely in the hip hop scene at the time and seeing that night has a totally different story of this tale with slightly different details. But Kenny Parker says rap battle is the plan. And he's the DJ, so he's packing three vinyl records with him to use. And when he gets there, he goes to the DJ booth and convinces his friend working, who goes by the name DJ Clark Kent, which I love, that he is going to need access at some point. And when PM Don finally takes the stage, nothing happens Oh, at first. They let them get in a song or two, and then they wait. They wait for PM Don to start set adrift on memory bliss. Cause just imagine you've got this club of people. They've had some more like, like up and coming hip hop acts before them who are a little more, which, you know, for the phraseology of this show are a little more authentic. And, um, and then these guys come on and they've got this hit that circulated on MTV and they, they hit the notes of set adrift on memory bliss and Karis and his posse straight up walk on stage. So is this where he gets thrown off the stage? Well, so this is where accounts diverge. Because if you hear this story spoken just in general terms, people will say KRS-One threw PM Don off the stage. Now, a lot of the more general accounts, that is sort of what they say. They walked on and he pushed him off the stage. That is not what Kenny says happens. Kenny says there's a guy in their posse who, who is actually the person who punches because first there's a punch, then there's a push. He punches uh, Prince B in the face. And that guy's name is, is Willie D. Now, it's not Willie D from Ghetto Boys. Thank God. He's from <laughs> Texas. <laughs> it is a different Willie D, but he's part of the crew. And Kenny acts like this wasn't really part of the plan. But Prince B is huge. He's over 300 pounds. And so it takes not one, but two punches. And then another member of the posse, not KRS-One, according to Kenny, will literally push Prince B off the stage and into the crowd. So I read some accounts of them doing something to the backup dancers. Okay, this so. is this is another thing where it diver- it depends on who you hear from. So there's three backup dancers, and what I've read, there's slightly different versions. They vary from quote they were pushed on the stage, and then like one of them eventually sues Karis one over it to these big guys from the entourage actually pick them up and carry them off. Like my college buddy, Colin used to carry me when I had too much to drink. Uh, Kenny backs up the story that they were pushed. So apparently that happens. And and he kind of acts like it, they didn't mean for it to happen. It's these big guys are jostling around on stage and they push the backup dancers off. If even all these years later, when you hear Kenny tell this story, it's helpful because it gives it some humanity, right? When he talks about how much was going on and how chaotic everything got, you get a much better sense of how crazy things happen <laughs> in loaded situations and how like you would accidentally bump a dancer off the stage or whatever, or, or a singer would get punched because you're high on testosterone and being pissed off. Yeah. Or really bad cocaine. So how does the crowd react to all of this? Well, I, so I don't know when the last time you were in a situation where you saw something happen and it was like unclear if it was meant to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When something like this happens in a setting like this and no one's expecting it, there's like waves of reaction. First, there's like, like, is this the part of the show reaction? And then people just aren't sure what's going on. There's a moment where it seems like it might be a robbery because these big dudes just like jump on. Remember, 
KRS-One's not really on MTV. So if you know local hip-hop, no. you know KRS-One at the time. And if you're trading tapes and stuff. But it's not like, again, it's not social media world. You know, you don't just randomly know what these people look like. To hear Kenny Parker tell it, tell it, what clues them in is that KRS-One picks up the microphone after Prince B has been removed from the stage. And he yells, BDP in the motherfucking house. And Kenny says, he takes this as his cue. So he drops the song, I'm Still Number One, on the turntable. And the horns from that track come blasting out of the speakers. And it starts with this horn section, and then the beat drops. And he says, "This is, I'm quoting Kenny, when the beat dropped, the place went bananas. <laughs> bananas. And he describes that people rush the stage, and it becomes this insane party as people are going apeshit to the music. He says, Naughty by Nature is there. Queen Latifah is there. Remember, this is 91, end of 91, beginning yeah. of 92. So this is very beginning for all of these people. And they're all in here in this moment where all of the sudden Karis one has taken over this show. And then they throw on the bridge is over and the bridge is over is a very important song in hip hop history. And it's a landmark song and a landmark moment for Karis one. Yeah. It's the bridge wars. It's classic hip hop. So do you want to give us a quick rundown of that? I don't want to get too distracted, but I do think it's important to sort of understand how essential KRS-One is to hip-hop in New York. Yeah, I want to continue to keep this on KRS-One throwing this guy off the stage. This was a rivalry during this time between BDP camp and the Juice Crew camp from Queensbridge, and it was just an argument about which place in New York hip-hop truly came from, right? So it has diss tracks back and forth, and the bridge is over is one of those. Yeah, so imagine that. Not only does this guy come on and take over, he then drops the needle on a diss track that makes a statement. And then, as that winds down, DJ Kenny throws on KRS-One's latest single, which, because, you know, you always got to be you always gotta be pushing. And uh, ABC, always be closing. And the guys leave the stage while Duck Down is, bra- is blaring. And according to Kenny... People in the crowd, it's funny when he tells it this tells the story, but he's like, and then people just started punching each other, which always makes me think of that Chuck Klosterman essay about being at a Slayer concert where the two guys just look at each other and punch each other in the face. I don't know why I didn't think of that first, but yeah, that happens. Now, the, I mean, you ever been in a place where there's all of a sudden there's just a fight and you're like, just I'm just going to yeah. you're able to get out? Yeah. Yeah, you just, you just slowly back out. So again, in this 42-minute uh, telling of this story, Kenny will go into great detail about how he gets out of the club and then he can't find his people and it's a whole thing, right? The next day, Karis one gets called into Jive Records, who he's been working with. And there's a swarm of press waiting to talk to him. They actually, Kenny describes it as like they walk into this office and it's just full of reporters. And Kenny's account's really interesting because he will say in this telling of the story, man, Karis one should have just told everybody he was wasted. But like that wasn't who Karis one was. And that wouldn't have been a very believable story if you follow KRS-One. And it would have it would have meant he was talking about or he was succumbing to drugs and alcohol in a way that was, you know, not how he wanted to be conveyed. So he tells them the truth. He told the press that he had been disrespected and he was setting the record straight. But the problem was the KRS-One, like I said, was becoming known for this anti-violence stance. And so people took this as an opportunity to just call him a hypocrite. And then MTV banned them. Right. 
And almost worse than that is that it just becomes a talking point. This is all anyone wants to talk about in any, in, in any interview. And KRS-One is trying to drop a new album in the subsequent months with Duck Down and other songs on it. And the whole interview cycle will just get dominated by this. And Kenny will say he truly thinks this incident is to blame for the dip in record sales that they see after this. Yeah, and you know, if you really think about it, KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions really were paved the way for, I mean, really probably were contemporaries really with, with Chuck D and, and Public Enemy. But they definitely did not receive the same type of marquee treatment, you know, at all. There is a picture that an artist named Andre Leroy Davis has made of this moment of KRS One, a paint like a like a drawing, a painting that he's done of <laughs> Prince B being thrown off the stage. And it's beautiful. You can find that in the show notes as well. But that's that's the story. Just go listen to some KRS One. Listen to his most streamed song on Spotify, which is a song about his disillusionment with the police. I mean, does that sound relevant? Does that sound like something that could have come out last year? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's yeah. not stuff that sounds dated or feels dated. And I mean, he's an amazing MC. This, this is an amazing question. So thanks to Kalo for writing in. And if you have a question, you can send it to yeah. us. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. Instagram.com is uh, a place you can hang out with us too. Rock and roll bedtime stories, backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, and, and we have a Patreon. Uh, Murdoch mentioned it earlier. Bonus content up there if you want to get involved in the show. Uh, extra episodes where we talk about music, tons of outtakes and random stuff from us uh, that we will throw up there on a regular occasion for the folks who support the show with a, with a little financial gift every month. And we really appreciate you guys who do that. Find that at patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, until next time, though, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? KTS, keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.